Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing us here together tonight. Thank you for your word. And we pray, please, tonight that as we open it, as we think about it, Lord, would you do more than we could ask or think? Would you work a miracle in our own lives and hearts? Would you give us faith uh, to believe? Would you give us repentance that we might turn from sin? Would you give us sight that we may see the glory and wonder of who Jesus is and find life in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, It's great to see you all here tonight. Um, It is good to see you, actually. There's lots of you, and uh, it's wonderful to be together as God's people. Please keep your Bibles open there uh, to John chapter 5. We're returning, as Graham said, to the book of John. We looked at it a little bit last year, so if you're new with us tonight, um, uh, we're we're returning to an old series. We've got... We, we made a start in John, and uh, this is where we're up to. Um, but I want to ask a question tonight, and um, sort of sparked for me by hearing a verse during the week from the book of Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. And um, my understanding of the Bible is that we are in the last times, because Jesus has died and risen to new life and ascended to the Father, and he's going to come back one day. And so it's that period between Jesus ascending to the Father and him returning uh, to, to bring in a new creation. Uh, it's that gap between those two times. It is the, the last days. The Bible speaks about it as the last days. And interestingly, uh, it says that um, the Spirit says expressly that in this period of time, there are going to be people who depart from the faith, people who pack it in with Christianity, people who once were Christians but no longer call themselves Christians, uh, people who once attended church who have given up on church um, and walk away from the faith. And uh, that's, that's pretty concerning, isn't it? As I go on in the Christian life, you know, another year ticks round, um, I find that the list of people that I know, uh, know of who have done that uh, sadly grows. But as, as you're one of your pastors, um, I don't want that to happen to you. Um, and John doesn't want it to happen to his readers. And in fact, uh, the, one of the reasons that he wrote this Gospel of John was so that we would be anchored and sure and, and certain about who Jesus was and what he did and that he's coming back. And that uh, we would actually um, go stronger and deeper uh, in, in that, rather than, than drifting away, rather than shipwrecking our faith, rather than falling away, rather than turning our back on Jesus. And so um, the way that John has structured this gospel, um, one way of looking at it is that he's built it around different signs, different signs, a number of signs. And we're actually up to sign number three tonight, um, as we return back to the gospel of John and look at this chapter five, we're up to Sign number three. And these signs, of course, are meant to point us, not to be an end in themselves, that we sort of stop at the sign and think we've arrived. No, like all other signs, they're pointing away from themselves to something else, and uh, in this case, to Jesus, who he is, who we are, and uh, all that Jesus means for us. So so these signs, there, there we are. We're up to chapter five. 
And um, these signs are meant to strengthen our faith in Jesus. I want to, I want us to consider three things tonight from this third sign. There you go. Three things from the third sign. Um, three things. And the first one is the wonder of the healing. Did you uh, get a sense as you were hearing this account, a sense of the heart that Jesus has for humanity and of his incredible healing power? The wonder of the healing. Um, John takes us, uh, he, he zooms us in, doesn't he? Not Zoom that we've used during COVID, but the Zoom lens that, that, uh, that goes from the big to the little. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, he zooms us in because he starts there in verses 1 to 5. You notice uh, how it begins. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So we're starting with Jerusalem, the big city. The big city and Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, uh, by the sheep gate, a pool. So he's zooming in from Jerusalem to the sheep gate to the pool, in Aramaic, it's called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. So again, he's zooming in uh, to this. And then it says there in verse 3 that in these, in these roofed colonnades, there lay a multitude of invalids, blind and lame and paralyzed. And so we, 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 there, we've been zooming in from the city to the, to the sheep gate, to the pool, then to the multitude. I love how one um, guy translated it. He calls it a sprawling mass of invalids. <laughs> there you go. You can imagine them sort of. Um, there they are, all laying around the pool. Um, and uh, he's zooming in from the multitude, even zoom down further... Uh, to verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Um, and so, as John wants to assure us of the certainties of these things, a little bit like Luke's gospel, he's writing that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that you might have life in his name. If you want to go know the purpose of the book of John, you've got to go to the end of John. As he's trying to do that, how does he do that? Well, straight off the bat, he anchors us in a real time, in real place, with a real person, with a real need. Can you see that? He's writing history. He's, anchor he's telling us about a city, a real city that exists, and a real place where people can even go today, and a real person who had a real need. But I think actually we should call it a chronic need, shouldn't we? Because 38 years is a long time. Dr. Dwight Peterson, a paraplegic uh, who's in a wheelchair, says that the problems of mobility and livelihood and social isolation are just the beginning. For a paraplegic, there is also the problem of personal hygiene because paraplegics frequently do not have bowel or bladder control. So it probably doesn't take much for us to imagine a man who has probably been moved around by other people and disliked. A Johnny Erickson, a lovely Christian lady from the States, who's also a quadriplegic, um, sorry, a quadriplegic, not a paraplegic, uh, but she's been in that situation, I think, now for 55 years, if I'm correct. Um, she speaks of the chronic pain that she deals with daily and her get-up routine, which you can imagine is not just her routine, it's actually the routine of other people around her, who shower her, toilet her, exercise her atrophied muscles. And she writes of how many times she lay in bed straining to make her muscles move. Can you imagine what it's like, what it 
would be like to live in that condition. I mean, it's one thing, isn't it, when we get sick for a little while, but to be perpetually sick, perpetually relying on uh, other people. Jesus' question in verse 6 seems somewhat redundant, I think. You notice what he says there in verse 6? When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Is that a silly question? Why, of course, had he been coming to this pool every day, uh, it would seem, or over 38 years, unless he wanted to be healed? But interestingly, the man's reply in verse 7 is not exactly enthusiastic. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. It's more of an explanation, isn't it, of his persisting paralysis than an answer to Jesus' question, do you want to be healed? You see, this man has been let down, hasn't he? Not into the pool as he might want to be, but time and time again, disappointed. His hopes repeatedly dashed as someone else pushes ahead, pushes him aside in order to help themselves. It seems that this man has suffered not just the difficulties of physical sickness, but he's also suffered human indifference, neglect, cruelty perhaps even. Matthew Henry, uh, one Bible uh, commentator, he says, it was not for want of a good will, but for want of a good friend that he remained unhealed. Someone should have lent this man a hand, but we live in a world where it is everyone for himself. Staggering, isn't it? He didn't even have one friend who cared enough to help him into the pool at the right moment. Proverbs 13.12 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Can you relate to that? Something you've set your sights on, your hopes on, your dreams, constantly evading you. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So true, isn't it? Like so many of the Proverbs. You read them and you go, wow, you just analysed my life. <laughs> it's true. I can relate to it. And here is this guy. You see, he's, his hope has been deferred, hasn't it? Over and over again. No wonder he replies as he does because life has taught him to have well-measured expectations now, some sort of settled realism that, well, he may not get healed. And by this time, no doubt, his whole life and identity as a person is shaped not around the possibility of well-being and healing, but around his paralysis. One thing is very clear. In his mind, his only hope was in the pool. It's fascinating, isn't it, here, to read that there's no mention of this man's faith. None whatsoever. He's not looking to Jesus as a solution to his problem. He's looking to the pool, to the waters, to the moving of the waters, to someone else to help him in. Maybe Jesus could be this person, but he's certainly not seeing Jesus. He doesn't even know who he is, as we'll find out as we go along. 
You see, unlike the first two signs in the book of John, where Jesus responds to someone else, they come to him with a need and he meets it. No, not in this case. Here is Jesus taking the initiative. Jesus, as we saw in verses 1 to 5, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Jesus comes to the sheep gate pool. Jesus comes to the multitudes. Jesus comes to this one man. He sought him out. And the miracle follows the command. Did you see that in verses 8 and 9? Jesus said to him, get up. Take your bed and walk. And at once... The man was healed, and what did he do? Just what he was commanded. He took up his bed and walked. Now, this was no minor ailment, no passing illness. And yet he did not limp or stagger. He walked out carrying his bed. Can you see the wonder of the healing? It's beautiful, isn't it? Wonderful. And we might expect the story to end there because that's where the previous signs have ended, isn't it? Where, where Jesus does something amazing and then people follow the sign and put their trust in Jesus. Isn't that how we expect the story to end? A happy ending? People begin, their eyes are open, they realise who Jesus is and their faith is awakened within them. They're trusting in Jesus. They look to him as their saviour and... But not here. It's not how this story ends, is it? Because John has set the scene, hasn't he, in verses 1 to 5. He's told us the place. He's told us the time. He's told us the location. He's told us all the details surrounding, even what it means uh, in Aramaic. (laughs) But he's held something back. Did you notice that? He's held back a vital piece of information in this story. He's, uh, he's, he's, He's a good story writer. He's keeping the suspense, isn't he? Not until verse 9. Does he tell us that this happens on the Sabbath? And so the story is not over. You see, this sign is not just going to point to Jesus' heart for humanity and his incredible power to heal. No, this miracle, this sign is going to point also to our heartlessness as a humanity and our lust for power. It's going to teach us something very powerful and profound and wonderful and beautiful about God, our Saviour Jesus Christ. And it's going to show us something quite shocking and devastating and quite ugly about ourselves. Have a look at this. You can see it there in verse 10. In verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Can you believe it? Are they blind? Can they not, do not, not understand what has just happened in front of them? I mean, he was the icon of, of no doubt, the pool. <laughs> Everybody probably knew this guy. He's been there for 38 years. The old guy who smells, who sits over there, who asks for help. To, we always shuffle him around. That guy, you know. And here he is, walking, carrying his bed. And yet these Jews, they show no interest, no wonder, no amazement at his recovery. What are they interested in? 
They don't care that this man is walking for the first time in 38 years, that he'll never have to come back to this pool again. No, they don't care about that. And nor are they interested or astonished or amazed at Jesus and his incredible power to heal with just a word. And in a moment, in an instant, to bring this man from atrophies and muscles to, to limbs that work. In fact, they're not interested in this man's well-being and they're not interested in who Jesus is. All they care about is what? Their petty rules. Their system that is not being followed. Their code that has been breached. Legalism, you see, has blinded them. They are so preoccupied with rules and regulations and being right that they cannot see what is truly good when it's standing right in front of them, smiling with the joy that only Jesus can give. They are blind to the life-changing significance of this miracle because they are offended at the triviality of a mat. Isn't it horrible? God gave us the fourth commandment, didn't he? We heard it read there in Exodus chapter 20. The Sabbath day. A day of rest. A day of revitalization. Where we stop. Because we don't always have to work because God is working. A day that God has given us to bless humanity. A day that's to be a Godward day. A day where we enjoy who God is and rejoice in Him and His people and His creation and just take a breath. And yet they had built 39 little rules around God's Sabbath rule and they'd missed the heart of it, hadn't they? And yet it's interesting, that's not the reason that Jesus gives. That's not His defense when they say, when they come to him, you know, they, they question this guy, you know, who was it that, that told you to take up your mat? What does Jesus say to them? We'll have a look there at verse 16. I'll go back at verse 17, sorry. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. My father is working until now. Is God working or resting? He finished his work of creation, we're told in Genesis, and he rested on the Sabbath. And that's why we're to have a Sabbath, because God rested, and so like him, we're to rest. Six days we'll work and then we'll have a rest. He's resting from his work of creation, and yet in another sense, God is always working, isn't he? How else would the world be? He's sustaining, that's what Hebrews tells us, and he's sustaining the whole world by the word of his power. He's keeping the things up that need to stay up and causing the things to fall that fall and bringing the sun up and causing shoots to bud and seeds to flower. And he's providentially, he's always working, isn't he? Otherwise, how would we breathe? God doesn't have a day off, he's always working. And Jesus says, my father is working until now. And I'm working, sustaining mercifully the creation of God. Jesus doesn't deny their accusation, what were you doing working on the Sabbath? 
He says, yes, I, I was working, just like my father. You see, John has included this sign as an explanation for why people hated Jesus. He's saying, if you want to trace the death of Jesus back to something, this is, how, this is where you should look. This is where it all began. This is where the hostility began. This is where they started to hate him. This is where they started to not like Jesus because you can see that in verse 18, uh, sorry, 16. We've got two this is why statements. So have a look at verse 16. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then when he gave his answer, my father is working until now and so I'm working, we get another this is why statement in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not just persecuting, but wanting to get, get rid of him entirely because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father. They recognized in Jesus' statement that he was claiming to be the son of God. He was claiming divinity, calling himself, uh, calling God my father. Well, he's making himself equal with God. And so they didn't just hate Jesus, they wanted to get rid of him. Can you see the, not just the wonder of the miracle, but can you feel the offense of the Sabbath? They hated Jesus because of it. That's not really where this whole sign ends. I've been thinking about this during the week. I think there's more to it. Not just, not just the wonder of the healing and the offense of the Sabbath, but there's a warning here as well. First to the man and then to the Jews. So let's go to the man first. It's in verse 14. So just look back there at verse 14 of chapter 5. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I love that opening phrase, afterwards Jesus, Jesus found him. Isn't that beautiful? The hound of heaven is not finished with this man yet. Jesus is going to seek him out yet again. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Great place to go, isn't it, after you've been healed by God. And he said to him, see, you are well. You've experienced the grace of God in your life. You are well. Can you see? Now sin no more. That's the order, isn't it, that we always get in the Bible? Saved out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt, I should say, brought into the land of land, the promised land. And what happens when they're saved? Given the law. Instructed how to live, a beautiful way to live that the other nations will envy and they'll go, wow, what is you, who is your God? What an amazing God. Saved by grace, by Jesus, given new life, and then shown a new way to live. See, you've been made well, grace. Now go, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? Sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. We know that sickness is in the world because of sin, don't we? When God made the world, 
Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he made it, what's that repeated phrase? He looked at everything he made and he said it was very, it was good. It was very good. It was good. There was no sickness or sadness or dying or tears or any of that. But Adam and Eve rebelled against God and God cast them out of Eden and he cursed the land and he cursed childbearing and he cursed and now we've got thorns and thistles and disease and all this kind of stuff. So we know that sickness is in the world because of sin. That's, that's the whole reason. This world has fallen and broken. But there's something else, isn't there? Because we've read Job. Remember Job? He was righteous and blameless and yet he suffered incredibly. He lost his family and he lost his property and he lost his own health. And there he was cutting himself and... He was, he was, well, you couldn't even recognize him. Job, an innocent sufferer. And then we read about Jesus in the Bible as well, an innocent man. And what happened to him? He suffered. People hated him, as we're reading here, and they put him up on a cross and killed him. And we're going to read later on in John chapter 9, not just about, well, we don't read about Job in John, but we do read about Jesus. But then we're going to read about another man who had a problem. He was blind. And God healed him. And it wasn't anything that he did. It wasn't anything that his parents did. It was because God had another purpose, another reason for, for bringing suffering into his life. And so we know that, yes, sickness is in the world and suffering is in the world because of Genesis chapter 1 and, well, actually more like Genesis chapter 3. We know that. And we know there's something in this world called innocent suffering that has nothing to do with any personal sin that I've particularly done, potentially. But then, that's not the case here, is it? Go, um, you see, you've been made well. Now, stop sinning unless something worse happened to you. In other words, there is a direct correlation here. Jesus is drawing a direct link between this man's personal sin and his individual suffering. Can you see that? And isn't that true? Isn't that often the case that when we sin, when we disobey God's word, we break his laws, but we actually break ourselves against his laws. His laws stand firm and sure, but we, we do, don't we? I was listening to the news this week about Alice Springs. Did you hear that? Why, well, something crazy, like 50% increase in crime and violence and all this kind of stuff. And it coincides very neatly with the, with the lifting of the ban on alcohol. In other words, probably what has fueled a lot of this crime and suffering in this community is what? It's sin of drunkenness. It's true, isn't it? Sin leads to suffering. And sometimes there is a direct correlation between the two. I used to work in pathology. Um, did five, five years down at, um, well, I shouldn't name the known place, but anyway, in a pathology lab. And I looked at lots of diagnoses of people with different diseases. And I can tell you there is a correlation between people's lifestyles, sinful lifestyles, and some of the diseases they get. Couldn't, it, to me, as a Christian, it seemed quite obvious. You can probably name other ones. But it's true, isn't it? There is a direct correlation between, not always... There is a Job and there is a Jesus and there is a John chapter 9 blind man, but there's also this man, isn't there? See, you are well, sin no more, 
that nothing worse may happen to you. His specific sin is never mentioned here. But I bet he knew, don't you? As the Spirit of God put his finger on the exact sin that Jesus was talking about. Jesus knew, he knew. I wonder if you have this kind of view of sickness, where God might bring something into our lives that is difficult and hard for a good purpose. Can you see that in this man's life, God has brought 38 years of chronic illness in order to help him through the miracle and words of Jesus to turn from a deeper sickness called sin. Can you see that? That is God's intent for this man. But I wonder if you have that view of sickness. It wasn't until I read uh, an old guy called J.C. Ryle uh, and his book, Practical Religion. He has a chapter in there called Sickness, and he gives, here are the headings uh, in that chapter. I'll give them to you, and then I'll give you his conclusion. Um, heading number one, sickness helps to remind people of death. <laughs> when you've got COVID and you're laying on your bed and you're zapped of all energy, you can't help think that you're mortal, right? <laughs> it helps us remember that we're going to die one day. Sickness helps to make people think seriously of God and their souls and the world to come, he says, and he fleshes that out. Sickness helps to soften people's hearts. I remember one guy at a church I was at, he hated Christianity. He never went to his own daughter's wedding because he wouldn't step foot inside a church. And you know what? God brought a, a, a physical breakdown in his life, and now he's at church every week. Sometimes sickness can help to soften people's hearts by the mercy of God. Sickness helps to level and humble us. Here we are racing around doing a million things, thinking we have life in our own control, and then we are leveled and humbled. Do you remember, is it King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel? Walking on his rooftop, looking out at his pool, no doubt, and his nicely manicured gardens and thinking that he was the king of the world. And then God struck him. And he was humbled and leveled. Sickness helps to try men's religion of what sort it is, he says, as well. That's true, isn't it? Is your religion, is your worldview, is your um, ethic that you're living by, is it good enough to give you a way of handling sickness in your life? Or does it actually come undone at that point? I think Christianity is so unique in this, in this regard. Every other major world religion has nothing on Christianity when it comes to a, a, a way of thinking and experiencing and getting through suffering. And then he wraps up. This is how he concludes his chapter. He says, If sickness can do the things of which I've been speaking. And then he says, and who will gainsay it? In other words, who can contradict me? If sickness, if sickness in a wicked world can help make men think of God and their souls, then sickness confers benefits on mankind. We have no right to murmur at sickness and repine at its presence in the world. He says we ought rather to thank God for it. Have you been thanking God for COVID? 
He says, because it is God's witness. It is the soul's advisor. It is the awakener of the conscience. It is the purifier of the heart. Surely, he says, I have a right to tell you that sickness is a blessing and not a curse, a help and not a hindrance, uh, not an injury, a gain and not a loss, a friend and not a foe to mankind. So long as we have a world wherein there is sin, it is a mercy, he says, that it is a world wherein there is sickness. What a radical view. Someone came up to me after church this morning and said, what do you reckon about that? Is that really true? Is sickness really a blessing and not a curse? And I said, I said what about the cross of Jesus? Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. And yet we regard the death of Jesus as a blessing, don't we? Because God, in his sovereignty, is able to take what is cursed and wicked and evil and wrong in this world and use it for his redemptive purposes for something good. That's the kind of God we believe in here at the point. And so he goes on in his chapter, he says, I earnestly entreat all sick believers to remember that they may honour God as much by patient suffering as they can by active work. It often shows more grace to sit still than it does to go to and fro and perform great exploits. I love this phrase. He says, we need strength to endure God's will as well as to do it. I entreat them to remember that Christ cares for them as much when they are sick as he does when they are well. And that the very chastisement they feel so acutely is sent in love, not in anger. Above all, I entreat them to recollect the sympathy of Jesus for all his weak members. Sickness and suffering, I often think, make believers more like their Lord in experience than good health. Wow. Put that deep into your heart and mind. Because some of you haven't experienced very much sickness or suffering. But you will need a framework to think rightly about what God is doing in your life and the lives of others in a broken and fallen world. You see, there is something far, far worse than 38 years of paralysis. And that is why this world is a world in which there is sickness and suffering. And that is what Jesus is trying to save us from. He warns this man, doesn't he? Stop sinning, lest something worse come upon you. And he turns not just, he doesn't just warn this man, he also warns the Jews. Remember the Jews? All they're caught up in their legalism and their system of religion and being right and not carrying your mat on the Sabbath. And he turns to them in verse 19. Have a look at it. Chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly. You see, he's trying to assure us of something. This is true. This is real. This is important. Listen up. Truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, has shown him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, 
so that you may marvel. There's something greater, you see. There's something worse than 38 years of paralysis. There's something more marvellous to be seen than just raising this man up. For, he says, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son of the Son gives life to whom he will. There's more to this get up. There's another get up, isn't there? There's a get up for this man who's to get up out of his bed and take his mat and walk. There's a get up, isn't it? For everyone who believes in Jesus. Verse 21, followed by, um, there's, there's more than that too, isn't there? There's, there's, there's in this world where we respond to Jesus and we get new life and we experience that now. We're going to read about that in a minute. And then we're going to read about how truly, truly Jesus will say something else. That the, that the Son of Man will come and he'll, he'll look in, into the tombs and he'll say, get up. There's going to be another resurrection. And this, see, this is a sign. We're not meant to stop at the sign and go, aha, wow, what a wonderful sign. What we're meant to do is to follow it through and see that this is a sign of what Jesus is doing and giving new life to people now as people believe in his gospel, as his word goes out and people get new life and they're saved from their sin so that when Jesus comes back again on the last day and he looks into the tombs and the graves and he speaks that same word from that same powerful Jesus and he says, get up. And there will be a resurrection to life and to immortality for those who are trusting in Jesus. And there will be a condemnation and a judgment for those who have ignored Jesus, for those who are caught up living in their own system, in their own world, and they've rejected the love and the mercy of Jesus and they've spurned his grace and they've said, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I want to live my life my own way. And Jesus says, if that's what you want, you can have an eternity without me. Let's read it. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son, of, the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. You see, the Son is going to judge that all who honor the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, here's the second truly, truly. I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's here in the present. Whoever hears the words of Jesus and believes that Jesus was sent from the Father and puts their life and banks their life and lives their life on that, they have eternal life. And he does not come into judgment but has passed already from death to life. Bang, a miracle. Greater than the miracle of raising someone from paralysis of 38 years is hearing the word of Jesus and believing, coming to life and passing from judgment because Jesus has taken your judgment for you. That's the good news. He died on a cross to take that judgment for you. And so then, have a look, it keeps going. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I've done a lot of exams no doubt you have too, and you probably will this year. But just imagine if your examiner took your paper, that paper that you've spent all of your university career studying for, your final exam, 
uh, you've crammed, you've done all the study, you've put in the hard work, here you go, you've put it out on the paper, you've, you think you've done it, you've nailed it, right? Just imagine if your university lecturer grabbed your sheet of paper and just tore it in two and put it in the bin. It would mean that all of your work, all of your studying, all of your time at university was just a complete and utter waste. It's useless because you'll never get the paper, they'll never give you the job, we'll never get the income because you're living for whatever you're living for. Hopefully you're not living for your income. Anyway, but what would happen? That would be crazy, wouldn't it? But here's the thing. That is exactly what most people believe about life. That you'll go into the ground and you'll die and that's it. Just turn back to worms. No assessment, no verdict, no judgment, no... No, this is right and this is wrong. You see, your life only matters as much as it is true that there will be a reckoning at the end of it. Isn't that true? Or what else? I mean, if, that's, if Jesus is not coming back, we're wasting our time here at church. We should be down at the beach surfing. We should be out doing whatever, whatever makes you happy. But John is writing this, and he's saying, you better believe this. Because this really is true. This really was a man who was by the sheep gate in that city of Jerusalem. Jesus came to him amongst all the multitudes. He showed us this sign. And, it, and the writer John will t- say later, if you don't believe anything else, believe the signs. You should believe Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible. You should believe the scriptures because they testify to Jesus. You should believe in Jesus because John the Baptist came and he too was a witness about Jesus. And here is witness after witness after witness after witness in the Gospel of John showing us that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he really is the one he said he is, that his death on the cross was not just an unfortunate accident of a, a nice man who was killed on a cross, but really was a sacrifice for sin really did pay the penalty, that God really did raise him from the dead to show that his life really was righteous and his death did really count on behalf of all humanity and then he raised him up to heaven and he's going to come back again to take us all to be with him. Isn't it, you see? He's trying to show us that it's true. Believe the sign, listen to the witnesses and come to Jesus and live for him. The wonder of the miracle, the scandal of the Sabbath and the coming judgment and resurrection. The sign of John chapter 5. We're going to, I'm going to pray in a moment and after that we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of Jesus' body that was broken, of his blood that was shed on the cross to pay for our sin. It really is a celebration, a thanksgiving. It should be a happy time. But when Paul was writing to the church in Corinth about celebrating the Lord's Supper, he said, actually, some people are sick among you. Some people are unwell. Some have even died. Because of sin. And he said, when you're coming to celebrate the Lord's Supper, you should examine yourself. Have you turned away from that sin? The same thing that this man had. 
sin leading to sickness was happening in the church at Corinth, where people, just let me show you. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let a person examine himself, and then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that is Christ's body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned with the world. You see, as Christians, when God brings sickness and suffering into our lives, He is disciplining us. He's not judging us because Jesus has taken our judgment. But Paul is saying here, there's some, we need to judge ourselves so that we won't be judged. Because if we persist in unrepentant sin and then carry on and take the Lord's Supper and pretend we're living as Christians, well, it's a lie, isn't it? And so that's right that as we come before we take the Lord's Supper, it's right that we think, examine our lives. You know, if, if you know the Spirit of God is putting His finger on a sin in your life, I'll give you, there's two options, isn't there? One is, don't go and get the bread in the cup. That would be eating and drinking judgment on yourself. But if you're thinking now, you know what? Yeah, there is sin in my life, but I don't want it. I don't want to live that way anymore. God has given me repentance, and I'm, I, I want to turn away from that. I want to start living how God wants me to live. I want to ask for forgiveness for that. Then this is a great opportunity. Take the cup. Take the juice and feed on Jesus by faith and say, yes, God, I want your blood to cleanse me of that sin. I want your body that was broken for me to be for me. And so as I take this bread and I drink this juice, I'm remembering the Lord's death till he comes because I'm looking forward to that day when he'll come back. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray. We're just in a prayer. And maybe if the people who are serving can, can um, do that. I think we've got some gluten-free in the middle, in the middle at the back. After I pray, we can go and take or not take. It's okay to not take. It's okay to let it pass. Don't be embarrassed by that. It happens all the time. We're going to go and get it. We're going to come back. We're going to wait for one another. And then we're going to eat and drink together. So let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, so much for this sign, this sign that points to who Jesus is. It, sh it points to our, our stupidity and our sin and our legalism and our love for, for sin. We thank you, Lord, that sometimes you bring sickness into this world, into our own lives, to remind us that we're mortal, to make us stop and examine our lives before you. And Lord God, tonight we do want to confess those things that we've said, those things that we've done, things that we've thought, looked at, things, Lord, that we should have done that we haven't done. And we just pray, please, Lord, we, we, we're not worthy to participate in this, this, reminder of Jesus' death and, and the celebration of what he has achieved. We're not worthy, Lord God, but 
We know Jesus lived a worthy life. We know he died a death for our sin. And so, Lord, we, we look to you. We look to Jesus, his work on the cross. And we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. Please cleanse us by your blood. Lord, we want his sacrifice to be for us. And we pray, please, would you fill us with your spirit that we might be able to turn from those sins. Maybe that one sin. Please empower us, Lord God, to go from here to live a new life that is fully pleasing to you in every way. Lord, we know we're going to stumble and fall, but we thank you, Lord, that the death of Jesus covers all of our sins. It's sufficient. And uh, Lord, we thank you so much for your invitation to come. That You said that any who come to you, you won't reject. And so, Lord, we, just, we do come, but we come humbly and we come... Um, thankfully and uh, we come Lord uh, together as your people to remember Jesus and to give you thanks Thanks for listening Tune in next week for our latest sermon or better yet join us live at 9.30 or 5pm Sunday You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au